Welcome back to the Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin Hale. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America here in Conway, Arkansas. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. Yesterday, we started a new series on the book of Esther. It's an absolutely fascinating story, fun to read, full of all kinds of plot twists and surprises and has very, you know, many things that are kind of relevant to our day at a number of levels and coming from a number of different angles. So we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 1, beginning at verse 10, and look at Vashti, the queen's response to the request that the king makes. So let me pray for us, and then I'll read chapter 1, verses 10 through 22, and jump in and make a few comments to help us think through what's going on here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the strength that your word gives us. We thank you for the clear picture of humanity that your word gives us, the reminder that you are in control of all things, and that we are called to trust you in what we do. We ask, Father, that you would guide us by your spirit this morning as we look at your word together. In Christ's name, amen. Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsana, and Mimukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Isurus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Isurus. For the king, queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Well, there's the next phase in this story. 
Queen Vashti, who had been throwing a party, a feast for the women in the palace, was summoned by the king. It doesn't say uh, why she didn't refuse, but it does say she did refuse. Now, there are a number of things that we see right out of the gates that are troubling, to say the least. First of all, we see that the queen was simply becoming part of the king's show of his power and his might and his greatness. Apparently, she was rather beautiful, and the king's goal on this final day of the feast, after he was, you know, well, taped up with some good wine, the king's goal was to show everybody how beautiful his wife was. She was to become, it seems, a token, just like the rest of the party that he was throwing, to show his greatness to the people. It says right there in verse 11 that they were to bring Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But of course, the queen refuses. It doesn't tell us why. And, and I mean, there's many plausible reasons that she could have said, you know, I can't come right now. Now, of course, it could have been her being, you know, being rude or being, you know, vengeful or whatever, but it, it's she's in the middle of throwing a party, right? She, there, there's all kinds of reasons that she could have been legitimately predisposed and unable to attend to this particular request at this particular moment. So we don't have to assume, like the king does, that the goal here is to undermine his authority or to, to be vengeful or anything of along those lines. But that's what the king does. She doesn't obey. She doesn't listen to the command he delivered. And he becomes enraged and his anger burned within him. And so this sets in, in, in motion, a series of events where he sits down with his counselors, his wise men, these seven men that he keeps around him who are first in the kingdom. And he asks this question, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Notice there's no question of well, why was she not able to come? There's no question of, of trying to understand like what's going on here. It's just, I said something, she didn't obey. What's to be done? What does the law say? Now, it's interesting, this character, Mimukan, he answers the king. But the irony here is he doesn't say anything about what the law says. Rather, he talks about what the potential effect of the queen's behavior might be and then tells the king to make a law to deal with it. So, so there's an irony there. The king wants to know what the law says, but apparently there's nothing that the law says about this situation, probably for good reason. But these men are fearful of what this might mean for every man in the kingdom. In other words, what if all of a sudden our wives have an opinion? What if all of a sudden they think that they can ask us questions? What if all of a sudden when we say jump, they don't say how high? See, th this isn't 
you know, complementarianism, just so we're very, very clear. This isn't a biblical view of headship. This is this is all of those things gone completely wrong. All of this is, is those who had power trying to protect it. It's a popular conversation in our day, whether or not that happens. It does, and it always has, and it always will until Christ returns. And here we see a prime example of it. Their concern is this. If it gets out that the queen didn't immediately obey the king, then that will inspire our wives to not immediately obey us. This can't happen. I mean, as you you read it, you can hear the, the fear in their voice. What if our wives don't, you know, jump when we say jump? What if they don't do all the things? What if we lose control? What if we no longer have the power that we enjoy and that serves us so well? Mimukin says this very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. You can, you can hear the asinine despair in how he's responding to the king. Their only concern here is, king, we've got to make sure we can control our women. So you need to do something. So what happens here is he issues a law. Come up with a new law. And, and, and the law is this royal order according to the, the law of the Medes and Persians. We know from you know history that the, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that when a new law was made, it couldn't be undone. And, and this kind of sets in motion some, some pieces for the rest of the story as Haman comes and makes this new law according to the Medes and Persians. And, and, and so here's the irony. The king, he can't undo the law that it, 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 once it's set in place, it's set in stone. But he can, in his own drunken anger, just decide to make a new law that is equally set in stone. So they say you need to, you know, do something. You've got to make a new law so that it may not be repealed. So that Vashti, you know, so that she never gets to come before you again. So that everybody knows there were consequences for her stepping out of line, for her not knowing her place. So the king makes this decree for, for uh, basically that all women give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. But basically the decree is, women, remember your place. That, essentially, that's the decree. So again, this isn't a biblical understanding of, of male headship. This is not a biblical understanding of complementarianism. This is a biblical picture of sinful men gaining that have power, doing everything they can to keep it because they're not willing to actually love and serve and lead. So what they do instead of understanding, instead of listening, instead of hearing, instead of actually loving, instead of actually leading, they just put their fist down and say, this is wrong, this can't happen. And so he sends this letter to all the provinces that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. 
that's his answer to his to his wife. To to just put his foot down, put his fist down, and dispense with her. Now, here's the struggle that we have. We 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 simultaneously recognize that that he is not honoring her, that he is acting sinfully towards her, that he's only propping up his own power, but that it is through this through this hard providence, through this sinful action, that the rest of the story is set up. That, that it's through this that God then, as we're going to see in the next chapter, puts Esther in position to be able to protect his people. And so here's what this reminds us of. It's not that we have to affirm sinful action and be on board with sinful action because of God's providence. But we do recognize that when despots are in power, when immoral men are in power, that doesn't mean that God is out of control, that he has lost control of things. Rather, God is providentially ruling and working, and man's sinful actions can't undo it. Now, one thing that we must be careful here is we must not say, oh, so the only way God could work is through this sinful action of this man. No, that, that's also going in the wrong direction or going too far in a different direction. God does work through these situations. But remember, we've been studying God's providence. He works freely. He's not bound by anything outside of him. Now, we can't say, we can't kind of look back and, and, and as much as we like to think we can and go, oh, well, here's why that happened and here's why that happened and da-da-da-da-da. What we do know, though, is that through this situation, God providentially puts Esther in place in order to deliver his people. So we can affirm all of these things at the same time, that, that what the king here is doing is foolishness, it's arrogance, it's sinful, and that God is providentially working through these hard providences for Queen Vashti and through the foolishness of this man in order to deliver his people. So again, we can rest in God's sovereignty even when fools are in charge. Even when people are not acting morally, we don't have to fear that God has somehow lost control. Might we continue to learn to rest in that? Amen. Amen.